We'll do it live! You are listening to the AMC Report with your host, Ryan Dawson. Hello everyone, this is Ryan Dawson on Anti-Neocons, the ANC Report. And with me today is Veronica Clark. She has so many books that I'm just going to link to her Amazon page below. She has a master's degree in military history. And we will be debunking some common World War II myths today. Veronica, thank you for coming on to the show. I'm looking forward to talking to you. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure. I want to get into some myths about World War II, and I'd like to start with one that is often repeated by uh, old Melonhead, and that's that the, the Reichstag fire was a false flag, and I'm not saying there aren't false flags categorically, I'm saying this one wasn't, but they say the Reichstag flag, Reichstag fire was a, a false flag to get the Nazis to invade Poland, which I think is a, a little silly considering it was the fourth fire in a set of fires. I'd like your two cents on that. Uh, that's right. And the first thing I always start with is why would Hitler wait until he's already in power to have this fire that's supposedly being used to get him into power, right? And to have um, dictatorial you know, uh, power over the people and to engage in terror against the entire states. The fire did not take place until February 27th. Hitler was, of course appointed by Hindenburg, lawfully, legally, quote-unquote, elected in January. So that's the first thing I usually ask people. Uh, the second thing is that Marinus van der Lubbe did, in fact, act on his own and had set several fires for that day. Now, the reason... This is a Dutch communist. Exactly. Yeah. The Dutch, the young Dutch communist Marinus van der Lubbe. And, of course, what was he doing in Germany, right? He came there to look for work. Well... He ended up becoming a quote-unquote revolutionary. Now, historian Ingrid Beckert has talked about how he was influenced by an organization called LICA, or L-I-C-A. Those people had also apparently made contact and influenced the young Jew, David Frankfurter, in the 1936 assassination of Wilhelm Gustloff, who was a National Socialist leader in Switzerland. And of course, Lika was also behind Herschel Glinchban, who initiated the Kristallnacht riots. He was the young Jew who assassinated Ernst von Rath. So all of these things are connected, and they're connected through this Moro Giafri and Lika. But just getting back to uh, Marinus here, who also had connections or ties to Lika. Um, this had actually been the fourth fire he set that day, and he said he was trying to initiate the communist revolution that the Communist Party itself was not getting underway. Uh, the reason nobody focuses on those other fires is because the communists hooked onto the Reichstag fire in particular to politicize it and to use this against the Nazis coming into power. They were trying to discredit Hitler. And it was the communists who in fact said that the National Socialists were behind it. And that was Willy Munzenberger's Brown Books. Those are the Brown Books that came out trying to implicate the Nazis in this. Basically, both sides politicized this event. And, you know, the communists blamed the National Socialists. National Socialists blamed the communists. The official trial that took place over this fire and condemned Marinus as the sole arson exonerated the Nazis and the communists both. And as a matter of fact, one of the common turn communists who was being implicated in this fire as being like an accomplice, he was exonerated and defended by a Nazi attorney, by a National Socialist attorney. So, you know, both sides were trying to get the jump on the other Hitler, of course, could not believe that the KPD, the Communist Party, was just going to sit back and let him come into power legally and lawfully. He was certain this was the beginning of something bigger, some kind of mass resistance. But of course, it wasn't. Now, everybody likes to refer to the Reichstag fire decree that came up after the fact. First of all, that was not Hitler's idea. That was Grauert's idea. And number two... Hindenburg and Heinrich Brüning had both been ruling by decree long before Hitler came into power. This was actually a traditional part 
of the German political culture. So Hitler didn't do anything that was out of the norm. And the Reichstag fire decree was very rarely used. The only people that were really affected by it were the communists, these communist party members, the KPD. So this idea that the fire was all about taking away human rights and terrorizing the country is it's a complete myth. And then uh, uh, the Enabling Act, they like to say that uh, the Enabling Act was also a direct result. No, the Enabling Act would have come about anyway, which Hermann Goering himself said. He said that during the trial. Right. It's also ridiculous to say the Reichstag fire was used to invade Poland when the invasion of Poland didn't follow the Reichstag fire. Exactly. And of course, that's usually where they bring up the Gleiwitz incident. And mm -hmm. I've gone through that. The uh, book I just put out is about a thousand pages on that. There are authors who have, you know, debunked the Gleiwitz incident completely and utterly. But I found some new stuff and I've gone into it in such intensive detail that this is probably going to be the definitive end all on the Gleiwitz incident. Okay, so it not only reveals Hitler's true intentions as far as why he really did go to war with Poland, which had to do with containment of the Soviet Union, among some other things, territorial. But, but what it does is it points to a circumstantial case indicting the British, who had their own radio transmitter in Polish Upper Silesia, as the ones who planted that false story. So basically what happened is the first reports of the Gleiwitz incident came out in the British press before one of those border incidents. There were, in fact, three. Gleiwitz was just one of them. Before they were even finished, according to the IMT trial that happened after the fact. So whoops, the British jumped the gun on that a little bit. But what you'll find is that the British report and the American Washington Times report do not match what the German press reported happened at Gleiwitz. So the thing is, is why would the details of this story be so vastly different if, in fact, something occurred there? So, you know, even if we had had a genuine false flag committed by the Nazis, you would have the same report. You wouldn't have these vast differences. So what you have is the British reporting something about an upper Silesian Polish war, which never even existed and is not in the German White Book or the German DNA. And you, you all have mention of Polish regular soldiers in the British report. That is not, in fact, in the German report that was allegedly in the Völkischer Beobachter. All the Germans mention is Polish insurgents Polish hoodlums, terrorists. That no is not the case for war. Yeah. No, there is absolutely no mention of regular army soldiers by the German report. So how was Hitler going to use hoodlums attacking one little radio station as his causes belli against Poland? That's insane. Well, it reminds me of what's happened in Ukraine with the shooting down of the commercial airliner and that story that the gun was jumped the day before as well and blamed on Russia and yada yada. But yeah, I right. digress. Uh, people are still going to say Reichstag and the false flag because they don't really care about history or the truth. It just fits the narrative they're running with. But essentially, if you're going around saying the Reichstag fire was used to invade Poland, you're doing nothing but regurgitating communist propaganda. Mm-hmm. That's right. And it was all in the brown books. Exactly what these people say is all in Willie Munzenberger's communist brown books. It was pure propaganda. In fact, he was a he was the head of Agitprop. Well, it's, it reminds me also of like uh, the same kind of people that always talk about the Reichstag fire being a false flag. Also say like, Hitler took the guns uh, when in fact the guns had been taken prior to Hitler ever coming to power and Hitler made the gun laws more lenient, in fact. But mm -hmm. uh, that was that's just another one. I wanted to ask you, secondly, about... The, I, I know how stupid this sounds, but it's something we have to tackle. Uh, the Zionists and Hitler had a secret alliance uh, and the, the Bush family and the Rothschilds uh, financed uh, Hitler's rise to power. <laughs> right. We um, can break I that up... Uh, 
well, you know, when I say Rothschilds, Rothschild, Warburg, Rockefeller, you know, the bankers, the Illuminati, whatever they go into, uh, <laughs> you know, you know, those kind of people. Um, exactly. Let's tackle this one. Okay, well, first of all, uh, Sidney Warburg never existed, and there are incredible errors in that little memoir that are supposed to be about the Warburg. I believe they were trying to implicate Max or something like that. So that's fraudulent. And the number one giveaway is that uh, Sidney made the mistake of saying that Goering spoke fluent Italian. No, he didn't. As a matter of fact, the Italians had to speak German. So, you know, you're not going to make a critical error like that if these meetings really took place and you really spoke with Mr. Goering. Uh, the next thing is I've looked into this in detail. There's no Warburgs, no Rothschilds, no Rockefellers. The only time the Rockefellers indirectly come into Hitler's financial sphere is by way of standard oil technical investments. And then, of course, the Warburgs through IG Farben and J.H. Stein, which was commandeered by the Nazis. So what was originally a quote-unquote Jewish bank becomes a National Socialist bank once the Nazis are in power. So, you know, what do people have to say about that? Uh, they don't account for Emma Detterding's uh, 30 million pounds sterling that he gave to Hitler and the NSDAP because he knew that Hitler was going to be anti-communist and he hoped that eventually he would get his oil mines back from the Soviet Union that had been stolen and nationalized um, and some other Eastern European communist countries such as Hungary, I believe it was. Um, and then as far as the party getting loans, um, these did come through, yes. Uh, initially, Hitler was lent money from, quote-unquote, Britain or the London banks, if you will, but it was really the credit line that suddenly improved. Um, as we know, this, you know, when you issue loans to another country, it's never like direct cash transfers or anything like that. There's always like strings attached. And... Um, this was thanks to the maneuverings, not of Hitler, but of Franz von Papen and Baron Kurt von Schluter and their syndicate of investors. And of course, this was mostly heavy industrialists. The Hamburg America steamship line is in there. Steinbank of Cologne is in there. And again, that was commandeered. There's other banks, the potash industry, uh, German oil, etc. So again, you're seeing big business oil companies, et cetera, coming together and getting this money together and the support together for the NSDAP. Now, Franz von Papen had his own reasons for doing that. He thought he could kind of buy and control Hitler with his syndicate and his elites. That's not, in fact, what happened. Hitler knew what was going on there, so he really got the jump on Franz von Papen. But it's important that we see that he was the critical person in that process. It wasn't Hitler directly doing business with these people. Um, and then we must not leave out the fact that 184 million rice marks, an enormous sum at that time, was seized by Hitler and taken from the, uh, the labor unions because the labor unions were all nationalized. And what Hitler ended up doing is he took that money that was largely communist and Jewish because they were the ones that were behind all the labor unions in Germany and he made the Reich labor union. It was the biggest one in the world. And it in fact had the most progressive policies for workers. Now Prescott Bush, of course, you know, he was just a board member and investor in a couple of companies like Union Bank and, and Hamburg America Steamship Line. Simply a board member had some investment in these companies and he funded Hitler. It's nonsensical. Well, I mean, the the Hamburg steamship line went to and from Hamburg, so... Exactly, to yeah. America and Germany, so... Right. Yeah, it's just a steamship, people. And Union Credit, they, uh, he's a board, he's a, a director on right. that, uh, for them, but they owned a whopping one share out of 4,000 for the, the Fritz Tyson Steel Company. Exactly. Uh, that's not financing Hitler. Right. And um, Fritz Tyson did not give that much money. He didn't give as much as Detterding and Detterding was Royal Dutch Shell. So, um, you know, 
Well, the other thing is people have to realize that big companies make investments. They profit anywhere they can. And with the German miracle, I mean, the economy rising so sharply from, I mean, when you contrast where it was to what it became, uh, a lot of people jumped in and made investments, at least before the war. Sure. Um, and a lot of those ended once the war began. But people profiteer. Uh, but for themselves, it's not financing the Nazis. Right. I, yeah. I mean, the only other option was to cut them off and completely isolate them and issue sanctions like we've done with North Korea. And that's not going to happen when Germany is central to not only the world economy, but Europe. There is no Europe without Germany. <laughs> so that was hardly going to happen. They had to work with the man that they saw was coming into power. And of course, I, I always bring up the fact that Hitler was nearly shot in the 1923 pooch. Mm-hmm. Scheubner Richter threw his body in front of Hitler and took that bullet. So why would Rothschild's choice be assassinated by his handlers kind of a thing? He was and also thrown in jail. Also thrown in jail. And number two, why would you have him wait 14 years and struggle for 14 years and waste all this time to get into power if he's your choice and he's your man? As most of us are aware, uh, Obama just kind of rose in the media overnight. I had never even heard that name until he ran for president. So most people learned of him when he gave the commencement speech for uh, John Kerry and they thought, who's that guy? And he had a lot of money from Goldman Sachs and so on. But I mean, that's that's how American presidents are picked. Right. And Hitler didn't get any of his real investment and funding until after he was in the saddle, not before. So they didn't buy him into power. He got into power on his own and was appointed by Hindenburg. And then the financing and the support came. So this is contrary to what most of us are told. Plus he he printed his own money. Absolutely. Once he was in power, he possessed the Central Bank of Germany. You can print as much fiat currency as you want as long as you're going to back it and people have faith in your bank and your state. And, and he threw that, Baron uh, Louis de Rothschild in prison. And even right. when they offered him large sums to get him out, he told him to stick it. Exactly. Exactly. So I think that one's been thoroughly crushed. Um, the, well, another part to that is the is the transfer agreement. I hear this one all the time. The transfer agreement was with Britain, not Germany. Is the British that were sending Jews to Palestine, which was a their you know their annexed territory, uh, they colonized their colony. And uh, th- well, all the Germans were doing, if you read the transfer agreement, is saying, all right, if you're going to migrate to Palestine, you're going to have to give money to this German bank and uh, buy from these German companies to get your own assets. Uh, hardly a good deal for the Jews. And the transfer agreement was uh, squashed in 1939 uh, when, the, when the physical war broke out. Uh, and despite all the negotiations with that the Zionists tried, uh, the Germans promptly told them to take a long walk off a short pier. They weren't going to continue the agreement. They put people in camps instead. Right. And of course... Even during the war, when there was attempted illegal smuggling of Jews into Palestine on the part of the Gestapo and the Germans, though these were SS-sponsored ships, they were turned around and blockaded. So why would, if you know Hitler is so firmly intimate with the Zionists, why would they turn around this illegal smuggling going on? Why would they block those ships and that immigration? You know, even after the transfer agreement ended, that doesn't make any sense. They would have definitely supported any kind of immigration to Palestine for the Zionist dream. And as a matter of fact, there was a lot of illegal immigration and secret immigration going on from Poland to Palestine. And I believe the name of that book is The Secret Road or The Secret Roads. And, you know, most of these books are like kind of obsolete, unknown, but um, they cover all this. So it was mostly Polish Jews who ended up emigrating to Palestine, and they were, in fact, the basis of the terrorists, the Jewish terrorist organizations in Palestine, like the Stern Group. Those weren't German Jews. And um, the other thing I would say is that uh, 
numerous Jewish leaders like Chaim Weizmann blocked any effort at other agreements, such as an agreement to transfer Jews and what assets they could take with them to the United States. Case in point is the Ruble Voltad agreement, which most people have never even heard about. That was completely sabotaged by the Zionists because they did not want to come to America. They wanted Palestine. And of course, if they had achieved what they wanted to achieve during the war with Hitler, they would not have needed the Holocaust story after the war to get more Jews to Palestine. So, you know, real quick before we move before we move on to the next point, I wanted to point out some information that is in James Srotis's book, Alan Dulles and the Master of Spies, because this is also brought up as far as financing Hitler. Uh, Srotis discusses that Jewish-owned bank, J.H. Stein, which was located in Cologne, not Berlin, as most people try to say Berlin. The Nazis commandeered J.H. Stein when General Kurt von Schluter, an ethnic German, retired from the military after 1933, right, when the Nazis were in control. Uh, According to Srotis, there is no proof that Sullivan and Cromwell, the Dulles brothers, or the London Schroeder Bank... Not to be confused with the Schluter Bank in Germany, which is unrelated, had any dealings with von Schluter. This was, in fact, a lie put out by the Soviet Union to discredit the Nazis. So, again, Schroeder Bank in London, founded in 1804, which is the one always mentioned in Wikipedia, had Mm -hmm. nothing whatsoever to do with Schluter Bank in Germany. They weren't even subsidiaries of one another. I'm so glad you said that because... I get sick of having to explain this to people, and it, you're right, it was Soviet propaganda, but this has had a reemergence basically because of dumb internet films. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, it's all rich man's war and stuff, and they go on to say equally stupid things about JFK and everything else. Um, but it's, it's a narrative that's made, just like the Reichstag fire thing, there are certain charlatan... Uh, bullshit opportunists who uh, think everything is a false flag, uh, who have become internet personalities that just repeat this garbage all the time, and they make movies on it, and like you said, Wikipedia, which is basically uh, an appeal to the lowest common denominator, because anybody can edit it, uh, who just write it down and say, ah, there it is, and now it's in Wikipedia, and now I'll source myself and make it so. <laughs> that's, that's not real history. Right, and Eustace Mullins also fell for that one. So unfortunately, in his one book where he talks about that connection, the Dulleses, etc., he was even deceived by that not by that uh, communist propaganda. Right. Well, I, I made a film called Decades of Deception, and I am not a fan of the Dulles brothers, but uh, that was one they were not guilty of. And uh, that's people, right. For one, you know, you got you have to look at it and. Um, yeah, <coughs> Schroeder. <laughs> yes, Schroeder and Schroeder are not the same. That's about as heavy evidence as they needed. Well, the names sound alike, so there you Thanks. go. Now Cromwell and all of them are guilty. Um, I want to get into, I guess we're just getting into the dumber and dumber mythos, but uh, there is a community online now that is getting, starting to grow is saying that... Uh, Hitler um, didn't die in the Black Forest, that he escaped somehow to a submarine. I don't know how he got there, you know, with a, they didn't have helicopters back then, so I guess a plane landed on an, a runway all of a sudden, and th- who knows. But they're like, oh, he went to South America and lived in Argentina because there's this one FBI file where this one single source says so. Mm-hmm. Um, that could not have happened. <laughs> Right. Now, I think the strongest case against this whole Hitler survived the war is the uh, interrogation by the Soviets of Keita Hoizemann, who was a dental assistant. She worked for years on both Eva and Adolf Hitler's teeth. And when the Soviets showed her the gold bridges, they said, can you be certain that these are the bridges of Adolf Hitler? And she said, there is no doubt in my mind that those are his. She identified this little nick in one of them. It was a drill mark. She said that right there. I remember when that happened. And his dentist was Dr. Hugo Johann Blaschka. He had made one little tiny drill mark on one of the gold 
um, teeth, if you will. He, he had these bridges made of gold, so she knew. So right the X-rays match too, is. so they're not just lying. Right now, why I know that they scraped the skull piece, or you know, somebody had gone to Moscow and scraped the skull piece and said this is really a woman's skull. It doesn't matter. They. <laughs> The bodies of you Ava can't determine that like that anyway. Uh, my brother's an archaeologist. You can't take a piece of his skull and go, "This is a woman," like from scraping it. That's no, that's not. Yeah, there's strange things about the American who allegedly took little scrapings. Okay, first of all, how did he get the scrapings? Did the Russians really let him scrape the skull piece they had, this fragment? And then, yeah, exactly. Who else touched that skull? Who else's DNA is on that piece? There's tons of unknowns. It, it just DNA. Why would you piece. go scrape the skull when it had already been determined that it was Hitler through the dental records, unless you had an agenda to lie about it? Exactly, exactly. And I point all this out in the Union Jackal. I get into it in the Jim Mars material because he really pushes that myth He's about. He's one of those Mars and Black and Jones. Uh, those guys, God. Yes, I deal with all of them. I've got Edwin Black and, and Jim Mars and all of them. But yeah, I it's, deal with them on 9-11 stuff. But, so I feel your pain. Right. <laughs> and, and the other thing is, Smersh found the Goebbels' bodies. They confirmed those beyond any doubt. They found the therapeutic boot on the corpse of Joseph Goebbels. And everyone identified the bodies. They said, that is absolutely Goebbels. Yes, I can tell just by the teeth how it's, you know, his jaw. They weren't completely burned, him and Magda. And the children weren't burned at all. They found all the children. And so, you know, again. Plus, Hitler was sick and not going to risk capture. He was definitely afraid of it after they had, sure. he had gotten word of what happened to Mussolini, you know, being That's hung by right. his thumbs naked and paraded around the streets. He didn't, he didn't even want to give them a trophy. Because they still could have done that with his corpse anyway. Said, "I want you to burn my body." Exactly, exactly. So yeah, and I mean, the Soviets presented photos of these bridges, etc. And you know, it's all in it's all in a book. It's so, uh, in Hitler's War by David Irving, and I'm not like, I don't particularly like David Irving, but I can't really find anything wrong with his work on that. Uh, it's in just mad detail. The whole build-up before and after, too, about Hitler's death is all in Hitler's war. More details than you'd ever want to know, and he definitely died there. Oh, sure. Sure. So, yep. And you, can, you can't just get him on a submarine. Like, they like, oh, I talked to the pilot that flew him out. I'm like, really? Was there a runway there that they landed on? They don't realize planes need runways. but Right. Now, um, they did try to indict... Um, Hannah Reich for flying him out. She said, no, I did not fly him out. She was also interrogated and she was even questioned many years later by this Ron Leitner, some journalist. And she said, absolutely not. I left him behind. They barely made it out. Barely. And she was just in this little tiny personal plane. Right. Um, how about the story of them throwing the bones in the river? Oh, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> why would they do that because they feared that you know it would be turned into a shrine but if you dig up the bodies and throw them in a river wouldn't the river then be turned into a shrine especially now that you told everyone you did that a much greater longer shrine too yeah, it does river becomes a shrine it's senseless it's like throwing osama bin laden's body in the ocean mm -hmm. <laughs> They changed they they changed that story like nine times and Seymour Hersh wrote a piece about it. But I think people just like the idea that Hitler survived. I think it's just the whole mythos behind Hitler. They're fascinated with the, the Well, I mean there was Operation Paperclip, so they think, well, they, they took uh Nazi scientists and stuff to the United States, so maybe Hitler was they let him go or something. And like the that. only reason they did that is because the United States was so technically incompetent against the Soviet Union, which was a rising technical threat, that they needed those Germans. They needed their brain power and they needed their, basically their, their technical know-how and their intelligence. And that's why we even have any spacecraft. It was all German. Well, I think that's why the Soviets got it, too. Exactly. Um, they kidnapped, they, were more technical, they had their own but... Operation Paperclip. Yep. Right. They had their own Operation Paperclip. I mean, 
they they were ahead of the Americans anyway. I mean, they, they had a more atheistic society and everything in science, but everybody yep. benefited from German scientists. That's right. And that's really what's at the basis of it is I think Anglo-Saxon jealousy. So now they want to act like, oh, yeah, it was these evil German scientists that made us do MK Ultra, and all. they get into crazy areas without any evidence whatsoever. And uh, Joseph Mengele, his now, doc- MK Ultra was all George White and the Federal Bureau of Narcotics. That's where they started that before the CIA uh, even existed. Yeah, um, exactly. And there, you know, there were no drugs, this kind of research in Nazi Germany. Um, in Destined to Witness by Hans Masakwa, he was an Afro-German, a, a black boy who grew up in Nazi Germany. His memoirs are fascinating. He said, I had never even heard of marijuana until the Americans came. What does that tell you about Nazi Germany? Right. Well, they were purging out drugs and pornography. Yeah. And now, they the did have Pervitin or Pervitin, however one says that. That was designed to help the troops endure like long hours where they had to stay up and stay awake and it was kind of like a meth derivative and this is why they say oh yeah Hitler was a meth head no people it's not methamphetamine it's a meth derivative there are many different forms of meth drugs I've seen that on the Hitler channel I mean the history channel the old uh his doctor got him on crank yes I mean come on as a matter of fact, I would invite anyone to look up the drug L-DOPA today. It's used by the pharmaceutical industry today. It is for people with Parkinson's. And you look at a Parkinson's patient without L-DOPA and with L-DOPA, and you tell me that they don't need it. Yes, they do. It's the only thing that keeps them functioning. So the meth drug is different in the brain of someone who has Parkinson's, which now researchers suspect 99% Hitler had it. That was the convulsive shaking, etc., that he had. And not clear thinking anymore, it was severely affecting him. Not that his doctor wasn't a bit of a quack, he was. But to say that Hitler was this meth head is total rubbish. So no, it was, I mean, he couldn't have written the works he did, and just he couldn't have done anything he did if he was a meth head. Like, exactly. That that's something too that was happening. Uh, a ba- a basic flaw in a lot of uh, military strategy. I mean, you can totally disagree if you want. You know more about this than me. You have the master's degree in it, but uh, nepotism within the ranks sent teams to like keep people off the correct path because the the upper echelons surround themselves with yes men and they don't listen to the lower ranks and so the real information that is necessary doesn't always reach the top because no one wants to report bad news etc and uh kissing up gets you rewarded and so through this system of nepotism you end up with uh, the wrong people in charge but with world war ii you basically had a uh, uh, Hitler and, and his, a lot of his men were uh, mid-level guys during World War One who ended up taking power. So finally you had people in the military who knew what was going on um, there to conduct the war. And Hitler did a lot of the decisions himself. That's right. And he actually didn't take that real authoritarian position and role until later. Um, For example, everybody likes to say that Hitler let the British go at Dunkirk. That is a very intensive um, situation that you have to look at all the different factors involved. It it had nothing to do with Hitler saying, I'm just going to let him escape because I'm a good guy kind of a thing. That is not at all anywhere in there. First of all, there's historians that say he is on the record as saying this war with France is probably going to last a long time. He suspected it could be more than a year. He had no idea it was going to go as quickly as it did. He didn't know that France was that weak. None of them did. And secondly, it wasn't Hitler, but Gerd von Rindstedt. That's also verified by how long he uh, fortified the Western Front in preparation for such a long war. He, he definitely thought this was not going to be as quick as it ended up becoming. Exactly, exactly. And that's why he needed the Soviet Union on his side, at least temporarily. See, people like to jump on Hitler's case like, oh, he allied with that evil Stalin. 
No, he never really allied with Stalin. He was trying to contain Stalin, and he couldn't get Poland to go along with him. And so he said, you know, I can't trust Poland. The Soviets are getting in there, and they're they're being very pushy, and there's a military clique, a very unstable clique ruling in Poland. They're very wishy-washy there. If they won't get on my side and be in my sphere, I'm going to force it. And so he needed Stalin in agreement with him so that he could take care of what he needed to until he could deal with Stalin. Well, you and know who did ally with Stalin? The Allies. <laughs> well, the Allies did too, but the I'm talking specifically about the Nazi-Soviet pact that eventually occurred where they jointly invaded Poland. That right. wasn't because Hitler was buddies with Stalin. It's because Hitler could not get Poland on his side. And so he did what he basically had to do rail politic wise so that he could deal because otherwise Hitler would have been split between France and Britain and the Soviet Union. See, he was trying to avoid a two front war. They always say Hitler got himself into a two front war. Well, yes, he did. But he was trying very hard the whole time not to have that happen. He was always thinking two front war in his head, and he's like, "This can't happen." But he wrote it out in Mein Kampf. I'll either need the British or the Russians. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. But the thing is, is by declaring war on the United States, Hitler forced the United States into a two front war, Japan right. and Germany. So we don't think about the fact that he had his own splitting of our forces that he was doing, etc. So this is well, all to consider. And with the deuce in North Africa and Europe, too, you forced the Europeans into defending all their colonies at the same time. Exactly. Um, exactly. Nearly had an alliance with uh, up, upstarts in India. There's a lot of things that just, if that one thing had happened, it would have changed the war. Um, but that's always seems to be the case. So anyway, <laughs> he he did not live in Argentina. And no. <laughs> no, he did not. There's no proof at all. Somebody put out this book, Grey Wolf. And he's got pictures of Hitler with like Speer's children or Bormann's children. It's like those aren't Hitler's children and they've got them too young. Adolf and Ava are way too young in these pictures. It's like his hair was already gray and he was already quite old looking. I mean, his age, he looked older than he was probably because of his hard living and his, you know, his disease. His but too. these are like him in his thirties kind of a thing. And you're going, those are not the pictures you say. It's total lies. Complete. So there's not one shred of evidence of him alive in Argentina for the rest of his life or, or Ava. Yeah. I mean, no, there is also, no by the way, escaped no. and went to Argentina apparently. Um, is it's pure to say. I know. Um, I want to talk about uh, this focus, We, you know, from the 1960s on, from the civil rights era in the United States, World War II has really been colored in that kind of racial lens. And it. I'm not saying that people weren't racist. Everybody was racist in the 1940s. But mm -hmm. uh, to the degree that, that shoved down our throats, it wasn't really so. There are a lot of... Um, minorities who fought in the German army and uh, black Nazis, etc. And even his view, the views of the pure Nordic race or what have you uh, also changed and evolved, if you could talk about that a bit. Sure. I mean, the first thing I'll start with is the very first book I put out on this topic. And it's, I mean, it's really gotten white nationalists and very Germanocentric revisionists all over my case. In fact, one of these people said, ever since she published Black Nazis, I've hated her. And I don't understand this because all I'm saying and doing, it's, it's not promotion of a multicultural agenda or that it was some rainbow utopia in Nazi Germany. All it's saying is that number one, if you're going to say that the Nazis were these Nordic or Aryan supremacists, as the Allies have been telling us, then why do you have literally three million non-German volunteers and conscripts in Hitler's service? Including during, Jews. Including up to 
an estimated 150,000 Jews, 6,000 of whom were pure, quote-unquote, pure Jews by Nazi law. And some of these Jews were generals. Erich von Manstein was really Levinsky Levy. He was a Jew. And Erich von Manstein was loyal. He was never part of the conspiracy. He did write favorable memoirs and, and kind of slam Hitler after the fact, but which German general didn't? Manstein yeah. was loyal through the whole thing, whereas ethnic German generals had been sabotaging Hitler from the beginning, men like Halder. And, you know, this is something that these these particular revisionists and white nationalists don't want to talk about. They don't want to address. They want to say, oh, well, those were just bad Germans and, and maybe good Jews. Well, you're already blurring the lines right there. So if we really believe in racial determinism that, you know. Well, you also have the alliance with Japan. Sure, sure. <laughs> Hitler allies with Japan and not with, say, the Anglo-Saxon countries of Britain and America. And as a matter of fact, his British cousins slapped his hand when he offered an alliance. So he turns to the quote-unquote hated Slavs. And uh, there were about one and a half million Russian and Slavs, you know, Russians and just Eastern European Slavs, Turks, etc., in Hitler's army or, you know, at least assisting somehow the armed forces by the end of the war. Some of these people weren't like de facto soldiers, but just kind of what they called helpers, Hilfswillige. But there were millions of these people. And uh, there's one historian that got into it, Jay Lee Reddy. He said there's really no way of determining how many, quote unquote, helpers there were. But we can rest assured that if there were one and a half million de facto soldiers, there must have been millions of these helpers. You know, even just your Ukrainian housemaid who offered to, you know, work for a German soldier or general who was camping out in Ukraine kind of a thing. So these are all things that, you know, a lot of these revisionists and whatnot don't want to talk about. And then, of course, there's also the actual attitude changes and policy changes and the dialectic going on behind the scenes with the Nazi theoreticians on race that took place over time. And what ended up happening is what started off as kind of like a Aryan supremacist or Nordic supremacist viewpoint gave way to this idea that some hybridity is actually beneficial. And it really wasn't until the Nordic was quote-unquote bastardized with the Phalian and the Dinaric and perhaps even some Slav that it achieved anything great. And it was, in fact, the Mediterranean race in Greece and Rome that achieved much greater things than the Nordic race, as we see Scandinavia did not achieve as much as Germany achieved. Germans are more mixed than the Scandinavian states, such as Norway and Sweden. Why is that if the Nordics are so superior? I so started to learn thing, about hybrid vigor. Uh, the exactly. analogy I give to people today, it's like uh, if you've ever heard of a ligon versus a, or liger versus a tigon. The, the mm -hmm. liger is better than a lion or a tiger. It's bigger, stronger, everything. Uh, the tigon is the opposite. So you can... You can have regression or you can have hybrid vigor when you mix things together. Now, I'm not saying that for people, but I mean, I'm talking about before people knew what DNA was or anything, and they're talking about mixing blood and stuff like that. These right. are sort of the, some of the attitudes that came around, but the the level of uh, that that race was the main factor. What I'm really getting at is, is silly. It was anti-communism, and the reason a lot of Slavs joined, especially from Ukraine, was because mm -hmm. the communists had starved millions of them to death in Holdemar. Tens of millions of people dying, and they're more anti-communist than they were pro-Nazi. And uh, there were a lot of uh, Nazis too that were mainly anti-communist. That was that was not not though I'm racially superior and I'm going to cleanse the land of these lesser. It was. I don't want to live under communism. And that was a real threat. Right, right. And there's an historian, John Connolly, who talks about how the Nazis didn't really understand the Poles or the Russians, let alone Slavs, as a race. So, you know, there could be no 
complete eradication of these people, and there was no policy in that direction. This Ostplan thing is the brainchild of von dem Bach Zalewski at the IMT trial. Uh, there was no Ostplan to murder 30 million Slavs. That's an IMT invention after the war. Uh, it was basically uh, Zalewski's plea bargain. But what's interesting is the Nazis, so once they get into Eastern Europe and they start encountering Poles and Russians, et cetera, they're going, okay, now how do we apply our Nuremberg laws here? You couldn't because there had to be distinctions made within various Slavic groups. And then there was no region in Poland where some Nordic elements were not seen or imagined. So what were the Nazis supposed to do when they came across superior looking polls to their own population. And as a matter of fact, many Nazi officials pointed this out. They said, some of these polls look and act more Nordic than some of our Southern Germans do in our own country. If we were to apply our Nuremberg laws like we do here in Poland, in our own country, half of Germany wouldn't qualify. They'd be racial bastards or degenerates. So once the Germans got a clue eye to eye, face to face, and actually started living amongst these people and working with them, they had to start changing their viewpoint. It was inevitable. So, and then what's kind of interesting is beginning in 1943, the Germans started offering grants of Lebensbaum or living space to Eastern soldiers, many of whom were Russian, who had distinguished themselves in service. And Connolly goes so far as to say that if the Nazis had won the war, the treatment would have likely been better than during the war and improved and not been what most historians say, which is extermination or utter enslavement. Well, there are a lot of white Russians that were fighting the Reds, too. And we can look at Operation Keelhaul after the war and how many were turned back over to Stalin and who promptly killed them. That's right. Yep. So, yeah, I mean, just the fact that there were so many different groups of people in the German armed forces, that Hitler had alliances with the Indians, the Japanese, the nationalist Chinese, etc., over, quote-unquote, white countries. Attempted to get one with Mexico, too, just like World War I. It's, exactly. What I'm trying to point out here is, is that there's, when you look at history, this, this storybook, like... This side was pure evil, and here are the good guys trying to rescue everyone. Mm -hmm. There are almost no characters ever like that. Uh, right. Hitler had good and bad qualities. Churchill had good and bad qualities. Charles de Gaulle had good, but they're people, you know. Mm -hmm. And most of them have just more bad qualities than good uh, because they're government. <laughs> that's, mm -hmm. that's what government is. Psychopaths. But... um. <laughs> you're not allowed to say any of the good qualities about the, the losing sides ever. And it's sad to me because some of the German economic policies, which obviously worked, uh, cannot really be studied because it gets polluted with, well, then you're racist and da da da, da when actually it has nothing to do with that. Um, mm -hmm. Or, you know, you want to put somebody in camp or throw them in an oven or whatever. I mean, that really has nothing to do with... Uh, the economic philosophies that they were using uh, to create the German miracle, getting rid of usury and so on, those might be things we'd like to look at again, mm -hmm. but they get associated with what has become the epitome of evil. Um, it's surpassed religion even. I mean, it's, it's no longer the devil that gets invoked when you want to say how evil something is. It's Nazis. That's, uh, right. that's like the Nazis. It's not like demonic or something anymore that's how like prior to world war ii what would have been said mm -hmm. it's uh nazi germans and right. i think it's a lot of collective guilt on uh germans today to be to blame for that war when i i would really blame it on world war one I. I mean if you want to dig into it which the allies started but right. uh, there are a lot of factors and i would just wish people could look at, at history uh in a clean objective way and, and just say what happened and some of these myths are just so ridiculous, and I don't know how they persist today. With all the books and all the wealth of information on World War II, how do we have people saying Hitler survived or, you know, you know all, all the things we went over today? It mm -hmm. blows my mind. And 
I really appreciate you coming on the, the program to debunk these myths. And then we could talk forever about World War II probably, but I'd like to refer uh, people to your works and your books. Get what? Which is your most recent book? Uh, the most recent of mine is actually just an e-book, but as far as um, print books, it's going to be the Black Wolf White Reich series. There's one called Black Nazis. The second one is Otherness in Nazi Germany, and that would be ethnic, national, and political otherness. And then the third one is Nation and Race. And these three books are actually one book of about 1,300 pages, and it focuses on race and international relations with Germany, um, anywhere from the African-American press and how they viewed Germany and how they used the quote-unquote evil Nazi canard to you know, uh, promote their own freedom from tyranny and white supremacy agenda to the interaction between the Germans and the Poles and Slavs on the Eastern Front. It also talks about Nazi race theory in incredible detail. So oh, this I wanted to touch on that, too. Like Hitler's view of Jews is pretty well known, but uh, of Africans. Um, I, f I forget the gentleman's name. It was in Ebony Magazine, though, and Hitler met with them and talked with them and shook his hand, gave him his autographed picture and all. Because it reminded me of the Jesse Owens incident, you know, how, yes. uh, how he was snubbed when he went home. But uh, at least a Fuhrer waved to him or whatever. But people say, yeah, but he didn't shake his hand. He was leaving anyway. But um, he was going to. He was, in fact, shaking everyone. What happened is really quickly, uh, Jeremy Schopp is the historian that detailed the true story. Uh, Cornelius Johnson was the black athlete who won on the first day of the Olympics. And he had won very late in the day. And Hitler had already, he had to leave because he had a prearranged itinerary. So Hitler left, and the Olympic commissioner approached him and said, it looks like you snubbed Mr. Johnson. He said, Hitler, you cannot do that. You either shake every winner's hand or none of them because that looked like a snub. It looks really bad. And Hitler said, my apologies. I did not mean it that way. It won't happen again. The next day, Hitler was shaking everyone's hand to the T, following a textbook. Before Owens was set to win his gold, the Olympic commissioner approached Hitler again and said, it's all off. It's against the rules. You can't do it anymore. So Hitler is the one who got denied the opportunity at a PR tornado. He would have shaken his hand and there would have been pictures. And I, my thesis is that the Olympic commission took that away from him. They didn't want it to happen because why would they wait? It's very strange. It's a very strange story. So anyone that wants to look into that, check out Jeremy Shop. I mean, he'd, he'd also met other African individuals, and he had shaken hands with them. And yeah, he I mean, met Doctor that S. Racist, like, Dr. S. J. Wright is the one that wrote the article for Ebony. That's correct. S. J. Wright. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it's just I just want to point that out, and I'm not saying Hitler wasn't racist, but I, you know. It's not so that uh, there's some gray in people, and Hitler is just seen as a pure monster by Western society who could possibly have ever shaken someone's hand. He was just adamantly racist all the time. Mm -hmm. um, almost nobody's like that, e even hardcore racist. Uh, it's just something to point out because it's baby steps for people, and people need this sort of G.I. Joe narrative of everything, and mm -hmm. uh, the world just isn't like that. That's right. There was one British official who got physically revolted and wanted to vomit when he saw a colored person. He was in Churchill's cabinet. I can't uh, Welsh. which one. Uh, the woman who wrote about that and names him is uh, Madhusri Mukherjee. And the name of her book is Churchill's Secret War. And it's about the Bengal famine that was, in fact, instigated by Winston Churchill in 1943. Yep. Over three million people starved to death. That's right. And Churchill could have prevented it 100% and chose not to. That was a Holocaust and it was during World War II, the same time period. And the Bengal famine is never mentioned. Never. The, you know, that or the three million people killed in Indochina during the Vietnam War or the millions in the Korean War who were killed. None of these things are considered, or Iraq either, 
they're never considered holocaust or they're never at least pointed to as an example of of the epitome of evil in history pol pot in cambodia where it's always the nazis and the jews and not the and so the americans and the british they can kill millions over and over again during world war ii and after world war ii and never get that stigma that they should have mm-hmm. because apparently if you win the war it's okay Right. And even well, if you, if lose, you target like in Vietnam, Jews, it doesn't matter as long as you don't. But you, you also depressed. can't target Jews. I mean, right. that's what we've learned. You cannot target Jews because look at the Middle East, which They're... has allowed the Zionists to ethnically cleanse Palestinians. You have them, oh yeah, openly building houses on top of other people's land. And but if yep. you criticize that, you're racist. Which is that's right. They're <laughs> completely backwards, approach. and you're a Nazi and anti-Semitic and blah 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 because. You're opposing someone else's ethnic cleansing, which is amazing. It's an amazing degree of exceptionalism, which is a very fair point. And uh, that's the result we've had is uh, Jewish supremacists are allowed to behave as racist as they want openly. Uh, Israeli politicians say things about Palestinians, referring to them as animals or lower than that, and and don't even hide that. I mean, if, uh, if an American politician even said a racial slur, they're done. In fact, if you even say a word that's similar to a racial slur, that, and that's a real life example, there was a, a Washington aide that said the word niggardly, which meant, you know, slowly, cheaply giving sure. funds. And he was fired mm-hmm. because it sounded like another word. Right. That and, was enough. I mean, and that just to mention that and you're out. But Israelis can openly be like the Palestinians are dogs and animals and we should kill their mothers. They give birth to snakes and da da da. And not a peep. Yeah, they're, the not, they're not only like, not losing their jobs, they get promoted for that kind of disgusting behavior. Yeah, and they also have concentration camps or what they like to call detention camps for African migrants, specifically in Israel today. They have right. 30,000 people there. Same that Canada and the U.S. did to Japanese. Yeah. yeah. Um, so they're really but for racist. a much longer period of time. And this is now. That's the difference. This isn't. And they're not even, they're not even in a state of war with the people they're holding. Right. You know, the Africans didn't declare a, a boycott against Israel or instigate in any way. Well, a lot of the migrants are there because of the economic conditions that the IMF and a lot of the, the Israelis and, and the Europeans have done to Africa to begin with, the transfer pricing and all the rest of that. That's they would be fleeing Eritrea and Sudan if, if uh, it wasn't for Western intervention that was causing the economic troubles there to begin with. Right. Mm-hmm. It's unbelievable to me, but uh, the reason I like to balance these things out and talk about myths and some of the good things, even of Nazi Germany, um, is to show that, look, uh, if you're going to say these things are bad, which they were, you're also going to have to look at Stalin and Churchill. and the, I mean, the French and British had colonized half the planet, and the, oh, sure. the Americans, you know, that basically the whole northern part of the continent. Um right. How is it possible that, that all that can get a pass, uh, but it's only bad when the Germans do it? Right. And all I can figure is, you know, to the victor goes the uh, the tools of propaganda. They get to continue their uh, press. Yeah, and it's all about perception management and how people it. see it. Yeah. And yep. and so what we did today was not only debunking this the, the silly good versus evil thing, but some of these stupid myths from the alternative media are just as damaging uh, and, and confusing so that people can't figure out what really happened and prevent it in the future. They they go on these wild narratives of the Rockefeller, Rothschild, mm-hmm. New World Order or whatever. <laughs> so. Right. They're basically accepting all of the mainstream myths that have been told about Nazi Germany, but instead of placing the responsibility with Germans, which they don't want to do, they want to place it with Jews. So right. they want to blame Zionism and Jewry for Hitler and Nazism. But right. you've got and there's plenty of, like, money. Zionism is evil enough all on its own. It, you, you don't, don't need, need to make Nazis. up extra crimes, you know. <laughs> yeah, you don't need the Nazis involved in there at all. No, I mean, the Nazis did it. I mean, they did the evil stuff. But, I mean, so did Stalin. All of them. They're governments. That's the Every thing. Every people. Look, you had, you had quote-unquote fascists, you had right. communists, and you had your democ- democratic republics. And all 
three systems of government murdered millions of people. The, the problem isn't the type of government. The problem is government. And I would agree. The state kills millions of people. No one else ever does that. It's not the right. people breaking the law that are the problem. I mean, that is a problem. But right. it's the people following the law by far that kill and steal and uh, just to... I mean, they they could stop right now, and the individual crimes would never catch up. Mm-hmm. So we have to really look at uh, authoritarianism in government, no matter what the labels are or how bad its economic systems are. That's uh, right. The problems with government, blind of faith to, to, and loyalty to government, is going to get you and others killed. That's that's the real lesson. Not oh well, it was that kind, and ours is good. <laughs> mm-hmm. So silly. All right, well, we talked an hour on World War II, and it just flew by. Um, I hope to have you back on the program. We're going to talk about some of your books some more, but thank you for coming and popping some of these myths today. All right, thank you so much for having me, Ryan. It's been great. Excellent. That was Veronica Clark. You know, another myth that we didn't get into was uh, Hitler's Jewish grandfather. That's another one that uh, we could debunk. But these myths are all in the book Union Jackal, uh, which is linked below. So I do encourage people to get dig into that and uh, get some of her other books as well. The Amazon page is linked below. But if you're interested in myth busting, which is something I think is, is vitally important, definitely take a look at Union Jackal. That would be the one I would recommend above all others. And Hitler's grandfather was not Jewish. I don't know what the need is to blame everything on the Jews. Uh, Zionists commit enough crimes already. We don't have to invent any. We also have the campaign going on right now to finance The Empire Unmasked, that is War by Deception 2, probably the best film I've ever made, and that's gone going right now. You can click over to that page and get some of the perks. Also, be sure to get the books by uh, Veronica Clark, which are linked below. Thank you very much.